You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello and welcome to this Wavel Room podcast recorded in partnership with Chaser, the Centre for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research. This podcast features Dr. Christopher Tuck giving a talk titled Technology and Futureland Warfare. Dr. Tuck works for the Defence Studies Department, King's College London, but working with the Defence Academy. He has also been a lecturer at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. This talk was recorded at Sandhurst on the 4th of July 2019. The Wavell Room would like to thank Chaser for their cooperation with this podcast, and of course, Dr. Tuck for this excellent talk. Enjoy. Good morning. It's great to have you all with us here this morning. I'm Louise Tumtruix. I'm one of the research fellows here at Chaser, leading our Futures and Capability Development Program. As you will all be aware by now, we hope, um, Chaser is the Army's independent think tank uh, committed to enhancing and supporting the conceptual component of the Army's fighting power. Chaser's Futures and Capability Development Program seeks to examine and investigate the challenges and opportunities um, facing land forces and the capability requirements of a 21st century fighting force. This morning, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Chris Tuck uh, to speak to us today to share his research and reflections on technology and future land warfare. Uh, Dr. Tuck is a reader in strategic studies at the Joint Command and Staff College at Shrivenham. Uh, Churchill Hall is no doubt a very familiar place to him as he was formerly a lecturer in the Department of International Affairs down at Faraday Hall. Uh, his research interests include strategy, especially the problems of war termination, what do we do to finish a conflict? and land warfare, particularly issues surrounding counterinsurgency and future war. Um, his publications include books such as Understanding Modern Warfare, Understanding Land Warfare, and Confrontation Strategy and War Termination, Britain's Conflict in Indonesia, 1966, 1963 to 1966. His most recent publications have focused on such issues as the challenges of measuring victory in war and the strategic performance of special forces. He's currently working on a project evaluating the challenges of measuring military success. Uh, Chris, we look forward to listening to you this morning. So uh, my name's Chris Tuck and I've been asked to come here this morning and talk to you on the topic of uh, technology in the future of land war, uh, future of land warfare. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, as Louise has indicated, I used to work at, uh, at Sandhurst um, and I'm glad to be back because many of them still owe me money. This is an important topic. It's an important topic, I think, because we live in a technological age and Western societies in particular are technological societies. Uh, not only are we technological societies, but we're living in an age in which that technology seems to be developing at uh, an ever-increasing rate. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, a significant futurologist, has argued that uh, at this moment in time, uh, the rate of technological progress is roughly doubling every decade. 
He goes on to argue that what that means is the 21st century will see an overall rate of technological progress a thousand times greater than the 20th century. So this is a potentially momentous change, and indeed Kurzweil argues that this will have revolutionary implications for us. So this is an important topic, and it's an important topic generally, and also for you, because if technology does change society, then it will inevitably also change how we fight, because war obviously uh, is a human uh, activity. So answering the question, how important will technology be in the future, and how will it manifest itself, how will it shape how we fight, are um, critical issues. We know from looking at history that it's possible to put too little emphasis on technology. If you look at the First World War as an example, European armies simply didn't understand properly how technology or modern technology would revolutionize firepower and increase the power of the tactical defense. And the consequence of getting that wrong was that they spent at least two years desperately trying to find solutions to the problems created by this new technology. And of course, along the way, hundreds of thousands of soldiers died. But there's also an argument that you can put too much emphasis on technology and its possibilities. So some of the critics, for example, of uh, coalition failure in places like Iraq and Afghanistan have argued that that failure emerged in part because before those wars, we believed in technology too much. We'd become seduced by it. We'd created an idea of technology and war, which was an idea of the sorts of war that we would want to fight not the realities of the sorts of war that we would actually have to confront. So there are arguments that if we put too much uh, emphasis on technology, that will have negative implications for our efficiency and effectiveness as fighting forces. Um, it's also poss as, uh, possible, as I indicated, um, to make the case that we can also put too little emphasis. So the question then is, what sort of impact will technology have on warfare. We need to get it right. So as an academic, I have the luxury of perpetual analysis. But you don't. You have to make decisions now. In fact, actually, probably about 10 years ago, about the sorts of technology that you're going to need for the future, about the sorts of wars that you think you're going to have to fight. So you need certain elements um, of certainty about those questions. So what I want to focus on this morning um, are a couple of things. I'm not a technologist, uh, I'm a strategist. Um, as Blackadder commented, I'm a man who's happy to wear trousers but has no idea how they work. But I think it would be useful to start off by outlining in broad handfuls and very briefly the sorts of key categories of technology that might be critical in shaping how we fight in the future. But the major part of what I want to do as a strategist is to ask the question, how much do we really know about technology and its impact on future war? And so looking at the past and the difficulties that we've experienced uh, previously, I want to focus in the main on the key challenges in understanding what impact technology will have on war. And so I want to focus on a number of questions. First, how able are we to predict the future? Are we good at predicting the future in any sense, even before we get to questions of technology? What kind of wars will we fight? 
Because it would be reasonable to assume that the role that technology plays in the future would depend to an extent on the kinds of wars that we might get involved in. Some types of war might be more technologically focused than others. So what sorts of wars will we be fighting? What will drive change? Will war of the future actually be driven by technology or will it be driven by other things? Will it be driven by ideas? Will it be driven by changes in society? How effective will technology actually be? Even if technology becomes increasingly important, will it actually make uh, the use of military power more effective? Will, is it more likely to lead us to victory? And then uh, a final category, which is really a sort of grab bag of specific issues, we to ask the question, what challenges does technology pose for armies? And there are a range of sort of sub-questions there about things like um, ethics, um, and specialization and these sorts of things. So that's what I want to focus on. It is entirely possible that technology will revolutionize land warfare in the future. It is equally possible that it won't. Why is there that level uh, of uncertainty? And so my key uh, theme, I suppose, is simply that surprise is likely. Whatever future we think is likely to happen probably won't happen. The more certain someone is in asserting that there will be a particular kind of future shaped by particular kinds of technology, the more suspicious we need to be of them. This, of course, puts an emphasis actually less on trying to predict the future and more on the issue of flexibility, of trying to adapt faster than your opponent to the realities of the war that you face. Actually, of course, though, being flexible is, uh, well, it's easy to say and it's difficult to do. There aren't many militaries that would say we're inflexible and we're proud. But being flexible is difficult. And if you're interested, I can talk about some of those problems uh, in questions. So what sorts of broad types of technology are likely to be significant for land warfare in the future? So uh, some obvious candidates would include, uh, for example, developments in firepower, so further developments in electromagnetic um, rail guns, high-powered millimeter wave weapons. Uh, also, of course, further developments in laser technologies. We've got here um, a US Helios system, laser system deployed in APC. Then there are the possibilities inherent in human augmentation, um, a range of ways in which you can make human beings uh, physically tougher, in which you can improve our capacity uh, for surveillance, in which um, you can improve our capacity to uh, interact with different kinds of technologies. Uh, so this would include possible developments like um, uh, protective technologies, so uh, liquid armors, um, armors made out of exquisitely thin graphene. It would include things like um, uh, um, uh, neuroprosthetics, so implants that would allow, uh, allow us to improve a soldier's cognitive capacity, uh, to improve their memory, for example. It might allow us uh, to, to engage in um, uh, surveying or even changing the mood of uh, soldiers. Or um, looking at uh, human computer interfaces and developments that would allow us uh, or allow soldiers to control equipment through thought. 
So there are a range of ways in which human augmentation um, might be taken forward. Things like powered and unpowered exoskeletons, I suppose, are um, a common trope in science fiction and, of course, are under development. Developments in power systems, power systems that will be smaller, cheaper, more portable and have more endurance. So developments in things like uh, battery technology, so phone batteries, nanowire batteries, um, graphene systems. Further developments in manufacturing techniques, particularly things like uh, additive or 3D printing. I mean, these things could possibly revolutionize logistics. Uh, smaller, more flexible 3D printing systems that might actually be able to redesign themselves would allow you to produce bespoke logistics support in theatre. Uh, and there are even debates about the possibility of, of so-called computers. It's uh, the ability to use developments in um, chemical engineering and computers to grow complex electrical equipment from a molecular level upwards using chemical processes. Firepower, augmentation, power systems, manufacturing techniques, but of course one of the key technologies that might be relevant for the future would uh, exist in robotics. Robots, of course, are already heavily deployed, but generally in terms of things like logistics, in terms of um, bomb disposal, these kinds of things. But it's possible that developments in na na uh, nanotechnology, in um, uh, power systems, uh, will allow us to deploy new and much more powerful kinds of systems, shifting from uh, the robotic situation at the moment, where, um, example here of the Russian-Iran system, we're deploying uh, uninhabited systems uh, to the deployment of semi-autonomous or possibly even autonomous um, unmanned ground vehicles. Uh, it's also possible that these sorts of robots might take radically different shapes. So there's been um, research into, into biomimetic robots, robots that mimic uh, horses, dogs, snakes, insects, these uh, kinds of things. When we're thinking about the impact that technology might have on future war, though, there tend to be uh, two other dominant ideas. First, the, the idea that developments in computer systems will will increasingly be decisive in future war. And also, and following on from that, uh, what that development in computer systems might mean for machine learning or artificial intelligence. So developments in computer software and computer hardware, uh, so it's argued, are likely to be dramatic. So in terms of things like software, we might see um, the development of uh, multilinear subspace learning. Um, uh, these sorts of things in terms of hardware. Um, we might see circumstances in which um, the principles of quantum physics begin to be applied to develop quantum computers. Uh, there might be developments in systems like um, passive Wi-Fi, which will dramatically increase our ability essentially to um, uh, process data. So developments in computer hardware and software might, in theory, revolutionize the volume of data we can handle, the speed it can be processed. It could revolutionize our ability to extract, to fuse, to integrate um, information. And all of this then leads us to the critical area of artificial intelligence and the impact that that might have on land warfare in the future. And the trajectory there, when you look at it, is, is pretty impressive. Uh, deep blue, 
computer AI program, defeated uh, human grandmaster at chess in 1997. Uh, the system uh, Watson won the game show Jeopardy in 2011. A picture here of uh, AlphaGo. Uh, AlphaGo uh, was the first AI program to defeat a Go grandmaster. I did that in 2015. AlphaGo is interesting because Go is much more complex than chess. And it was thought that it would be at least another 10 years before you could develop an AI algorithm that would be able to defeat a human grandmaster at this game. Um, but AlphaGo did that pretty comprehensively. Uh, AlphaGo was followed the following year by further development, AlphaGo Zero. AlphaGo Zero was a much simpler algorithm, but much, much more powerful. And it taught itself to play the game Go uh, itself, self-taught. The trajectory of developments here might lead us towards a truly revolutionary future. For some writers, what we're on the brink of now is, is what's been termed a Cambrian moment. So Cambrian moment, the Cambrian period from prehistory was the point at which they, we see, we see um, an explosion of life on Earth. And so the argument is that that's what we're facing now, but it will be an explosion of artificial life. And this might have profound implications. What's really interesting about AlphaGo was that as it was playing, of course, other Go grandmasters are watching because who wouldn't want to see whether their brethren humiliated by a computer? Um, and what those grandmasters recognized was that for periods of time, AlphaGo was, uh, Alpha was playing a game that was so long-term and so complex, they couldn't understand it. So what sorts of futures might there be in warfare if we're dealing with highly effective autonomous systems that are making decisions, going through processes that we can't understand? There is no point in having a human in the loop or on the loop. We won't even know if those systems are going wrong. So the potential there is uh, possibly dramatic. And um, Ray Kurzweil, a uh, picture you saw uh, earlier on, has made the argument that, that this process of change is inevitable and it will have revolutionary implications. It will produce a paradigm shift in human affairs, a momentous change, changing all the rules. It will lead, in, in his arguments, to a technological singularity, a point where our models must be discarded and a new uh, reality rules. I'm going to walk over here, see if the side's nicer. Collectively, therefore, there is a view that these sorts of developments will revolutionize the future. But as a strategist looking to the past, I think I have more skepticism, not necessarily that technology won't change the future, because it might. But what I have is a skepticism about our ability to predict the outcome of the operation of these sorts of trends. I think it is important for us to recognize what we don't know and the problems that that causes. Um, this is something we need to think about significantly. And so what I want to do is to focus then on those five questions. What is the problem with being definite about technology in the future, which is what you ideally need? So the first problem is uh, the problem of uh, 
Oh, there we go. What a surprise. <laughs> Before we get to that, what sorts of futures could you have? Well, they could be vast. The problem is that it is perfectly uh, logical at the moment to argue that developments in technology might change the nature of war. It's a key assertion, I think, these days, that the, the character of war changes, but the nature doesn't. And part of that nature of war is that it's human. One possible future, of course, if you look at the trajectory of these technological developments, is that it does change the nature of war because human beings have to be removed from the key aspects of warfare because there'll be no point in having us involved in the, in the loop. We can't make decisions quickly enough um, and we won't understand what's going on. So we could see a change in the nature of war. Another possibility would be that uh, the nature of war doesn't change, but how it's fought does. There could still be a revolution in that. So the future of land warfare might be a future marked by the deployment of huge numbers of uh, very small autonomous devices, lethal autonomous de devices, operating according to swarming principles that actually could target personnel, that could target particular types of personnel as well. Or it might be that the future isn't that revolutionary. Many of the pieces might stay the same. War might still be relevant, um, but fundamentally different. So it might be, for example, uh, that we still see troops deployed on the battlefield, but supported by um, new and highly sophisticated autonomous weapons in that kind of human uh, machine teaming or centaur configuration. Or it might be that none of this is relevant. It might be that in the future, war fundamentally will be fought by super-empowered cyber capabilities. Cyber capabilities which will be able to crash not just military systems, but in fact they could leap military systems and just go straight for societies, their political and economic systems. Or they could engage in damaging social engineering uh, attacks, deep fake attacks, for example. Or it might be possible that for most people, nothing will change. That the technology for most people that's most likely to kill you is a machete or a knife wielded by your neighbor. So there are a huge range of potential futures and that doesn't help you very much, but that's the way it is. So what is the problem? Why can't we be as definitive as we would like about the future? So, the first problem is this. You heard it here first. The future is difficult to predict. I think it's summed up nicely by two comments. The first is by the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, who made the point that nothing that we imagine is completely impossible. So there's a potentially infinite array of futures available to us in thinking about the impact of technology. The second quote is from the strategist Colin Gray, and he makes the point um, that nothing is impossible, but just not equally, um, nothing is impossible, um, but not equally likely. In other words, what we have is a situation in which there are a range of potential futures, but that we have to make a decision about which of that potentially infinite array are the most likely, or indeed the single one that is the most likely outcome. So 
The problem in predicting the future is uh, firstly because there are a whole range of things basically fundamental to the future which make it difficult to predict. By definition, for example, the future hasn't happened yet. So there's no evidence. We know nothing, literally zero for certain about the future. And another problem is because there's no evidence, uh, what we tend to fill the evidence void with are sets of beliefs, personal beliefs, or organizational biases about the future. It's no surprise to find that when each of the services looks at technology in the future, they tend to develop a future that suits them or their aspirations. Uh, the future is also uh, difficult to predict because the future is something over which we have control. There can often be the view that the future is just like a tidal wave coming towards you and there's nothing that you can do about it, but that's not true. The future that we get is in part shaped by actions that we take now. Uh, so for example, policy choices. In 2000, the future of the British Armed Forces was complex nation-building operations in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was the future for the British Armed Forces because the British government made the decision that those armed forces would be sent. If the government doesn't make those decisions, it doesn't get involved in those sorts of wars. So there is human agency involved. So this is the first problem. The nature of the future makes it inherently difficult to predict. Secondly, the tools we have to try and make sense of the future are also flawed. Uh, so for example, military experience is one thing that we can try and use, our experience, experience of others, to think about how technology might affect the future. But that's flawed. It's flawed because experience is not an objective commodity. We filter it through our subjective beliefs, um, our uh, subjective prejudices. So the American Civil War, for example, was a war in retrospect that European armies could have learned a lot about in relation to the impact of firepower and entrenchments. Um, but we didn't learn those lessons despite having lots of military observers there because we took the view that the reason the Americans found uh, warfare difficult in the American Civil War was because their armies weren't very good. They were militia armies. Well, European armies would be different. So the American experience wasn't relevant because European conditions would be different. So experience is flawed. The other key tool that we tend to use to think about the future is uh, extrapolation. It's trend analysis. Thinking about a point in, in the past and uh, thinking then about how things have changed through to the present and then just extrapolating that on uh, into the future. But trend analysis is highly problematic. Um, for example, have you actually identified the trends that matter? That's a problem. And then, of course, some trends just stop. They become negated by other developments that you never foresaw. And even if you can identify key trends, the impact that those trends have in the long run will often depend on the complex interaction between that trend and a whole range of other trends. So trend analysis is flawed. Uh, as Christopher Coker notes in his book, Future War, the future uh, we envision can only be an extrapolation of present trends taken to a logical and therefore often illogical conclusion. And indeed, there's an argument that these problems of prediction are getting worse. If it's true that technology is developing an exponential rate, then actually the future isn't getting closer. It's moving further and further away. 
The future isn't a wave coming towards us. It's something which is receding in front of us. The point being that, that, that um, when new technology emerges, it takes time to comprehend it. It takes, it takes time to embody and integrate it into your systems. And if technology really is developing that fast, then by the time you have integrated a technology and thought about how to use it, technology's already moved on. You're constantly living in the past. And so predicting the future is fundamentally difficult. Uh, Dan Gardner, um, uh, futurologist, makes a note, those who seek forecasts of the future will be well advised to consult fortune cookies or the mysterious Madame Zelda. They're cheaper and you can eat a fortune cookie. The most systematic attempt to analyze the problems of predicting the future was conducted by a political scientist named Philip Tetlock. Um, uh, what Tetlock did was over a 20 year period from 1984 to 2004, he got together a group of experts, there's about 280 of them, and he just asked them questions over that 20 year period. And then he rated them. He rated them for their accuracy and specificity. And his conclusions at the end of this two decade long process um, was that uh, in terms of accuracy, experts were worse at predicting the future than a monkey with a dartboard. They were literally worse than guessing. And indeed, depressingly, experts were slightly less accurate at prediction in the areas of their own expertise. The lesson being, if you want to be talked about, if you want someone to talk about technology and future war, don't invite me. Ask your mum. So looking at the past uh, and finding incidents where grotesque mistakes have been made in assessing the impact of technology, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society in 1895, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. He should know, he was an expert. What about atomic weapons? Uh, Admiral William Leahy, this is the biggest full thing we've ever done. This was an atomic um, test. The bomb will never go off and I speak as an expert in explosives. So here we have a fundamental problem. We are terrible at prediction, full stop, in anything. And that also then applies to technology and future war. There is no way around these problems. The second issue that I think is important here is to ask the question, what kind of wars will we be fighting in the future? Because it is reasonable to assume that the importance of technology and the impact that it will have on future land warfare will depend to an extent on what kinds of wars we're going to fight. Because that will um, shape, for example, the political contest, context, the objectives. It will shape the demand for the kinds of technologies that we need and how they'll be used. And there are two problems here. The first problem is that there is simply no consensus amongst uh, thinkers on future war on what the future of war might be. There is a marketplace of ideas out there which, um, which exist to explain the different sorts of, of, of wars that we might, uh, we might fight. I use this phrase paradigm or model. Uh, when you look at predictions for future war, they are often paradigmatic. And what I mean by that is that uh, those who are trying to predict the future often try and predict the future in terms of one big idea, a meta-narrative. Future war will be this, and this is what we need to prepare for. It's what you should be preparing for. So for some, 
What you need to be preparing for and acquiring technology for is a kind of, uh, it's a technophile hyperwar. So this will be a um, high-tech uh, conventional conflict in which technology will be crucial. So you need to be investing in autonomous systems, hypersonic capabilities, these kinds of things. This will be fast war, quick war. It will be decisive war in which things like agility and flexibility will be crucial. Others argue that that's nonsense. Others argue that this is the war that Western militaries would like to fight. The actual war you'd have to fight will be hybrid warfare. Hybrid warfare, uh, forms of war, a form of war which blends in complex ways both conventional and unconventional sorts of technologies. And many of the people would argue that you know, Russia, for example, provides a classic example of where warfare is going. And to fight that war, you need to think not just about military technologies, but you need to think about the application of technology to war in a much wider sense. Future conflict will be political, it will be economic, it will be cultural, it will be societal. So that's where you need to be uh, investing your efforts. And then others argue, no, that's also rubbish. The future you need to be preparing for is a so-called new war's future. Future war will actually be a brutal form of unconventional conflict. Future war actually won't generally be fought by conventional militaries. It will be fought by militias. It will be fought by warlords. It will be fought over um, not uh, resources, um, or traditional politics, it will be fought over issues like identity. So future conflict will actually be fought uh, possibly by militia groups. These will be communal sectarian struggles, brutal um, local conflicts in which actually high-tech conventional militaries will be largely irrelevant. So here's your first problem. We don't know what sorts of wars actually that you'll be fighting in the future. And indeed, a second issue is there, are, there is a large debate on whether this um, approach, paradigmatic approach is any use at all. Because the argument here is that there's never been just one kind of war that's been fought. War is an open system. How you fight war is shaped by the political culture that you have, your economy, your society. Different states fight differently. And so the argument here is that there are multiple futures for war. You cannot just prepare for one paradigm. If you do, you're preparing for the wrong kind of war. You're likely to be surprised. And so, for example, in the 1980s, when we were talking about the possibility of a new revolution in military affairs caused by precision-guided munitions, new sensor technologies, new networks that were going to result in um, uh, this new... Um, extraordinarily technologically focused form of war. The Iranians and the Iraqis were basically refighting 1916. They had modern technology, but they couldn't use it in modern ways. So there may be as many forms of war in the future as there are societies and states fighting it. Uh, another example, the fighting in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine, I think, is interesting because the Ukrainian military, when it started that uh, fight in the 1990s, had been going through a process of military reform, which was shaped really according to Western norms. They were trained to fight a more, a more technologically focused um, 
uh, form of war which, which would require network forces, smaller professional armies, these kinds of things. That force collapsed. The war they had to fight embodied really interesting combinations of the new and the old. So in terms of, uh, for example, equipment procurement, aspects of that war have been very, very new indeed. So the Ukrainian military have relied uh, sometimes on internet crowdfunding some of their equipment. So at least you get it quickly. Uh, but other aspects look right back to the, at least the medieval period. So when the regular army collapsed, what took up the slack and what actually turned back the separatists initial stages were volunteer battalions raised by local notables. That's a form of military mobilization which, which goes right back into the military past. So we're rubbish at predicting the future. And we have no clear idea, there's no consensus surrounding what kinds of wars we will be fighting, making it difficult then to think about what sorts of technologies we might need and how they might be used. Good. So surfing the wave of your enthusiasm, let me turn to uh, the third question. What will drive change in land warfare? The point I'm making here is simply that not only do we know nothing about the future, but we don't actually really know anything for certain about the past either. And if we don't know anything for certain about the past, it makes it very difficult to develop workable tools for thinking about the future. And the point I want to make here is simply that there is no consensus um, on the role played by technology in, in producing military change. For some, there is direct relationship between new technology and changes in land warfare. New technology tends to produce, according to this argument, revolutions in how we fight. So to understand the future of land warfare, we would just need to think about what the key technologies um, would be that would shape it. And so this sort of approach is used, for example, by Randall Bowdish, who argues that um, war has been uh, pushed forward in terms of its development by new technologies. Each new key technology is, uh, represents a paradigm shift, a, a leap forward. So he talks about uh, generations of war. You go from first generation uh, pre-gunpowder uh, warfare through to sixth generation war, which is where we are now, which is about data processing and precision weapons. If you take this view, then technology will be critical in shaping future land warfare it will be the most important element. But there is no consensus that technology actually is the key uh, instrument in um, producing military change. So others have argued, for example, that what's really important isn't technology, it's ideas. When you look at how technology has developed you uh, and, um, uh, and land warfare has developed, you often find that new technology just gets appliqued onto old ideas and that breakthroughs in the way land warfare is fought often comes from using uh, old technology in new ways. It's about how you think. So uh, Bill Lind and others argued if you want to think about how land warfare has developed over time, it's not a history of technology, it's a history of ideas. What this means, of course, is that, that um, what we need to be thinking about at the moment is not technology. It's about how we might use technology, which would be, which would be crucial. So if you look at land warfare and uh, various revolutions, uh, the infantry revolution in the First World War 
development of modern infantry tactics doesn't rely on new technology. It's about new doctrine, infiltration tactics, fire and movement. What we call blitzkrieg, operational level mobile warfare, isn't built on new technology. It's built on using combinations of old, older technology. It's about uh, the internal combustion engine and the radio and a new concept for using them. So the point I'm just making here is that not only do we not know anything about the future for certain, we actually don't know for certain anything about the past. And that complicates dramatically uh, how we might think about the importance of technology versus other drivers of change. We might be focusing on technology when the really big idea, uh, the, the big changes are wrought by ideas that we haven't thought of or broader changes in society even. So the next issue I think that's worth uh, talking about is this question, how effective will future technology be? And this point is, um, focuses on the idea that technological superiority doesn't guarantee military success. And that I think is, is pretty self-evident, but we keep forgetting it. Uh, ultimately, strategy and policy are critical. You cannot rescue bad strategy with good technology. It just doesn't work like that. History is filled with examples of technologically superior militaries that have still lost wars. Uh, America lost in Vietnam, for example, against an opponent which had uh, what was disparagingly referred to as a bicycle-powered economy. And of course, we only have to look at Iran and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan to see the limits that high technology um, has in compensating for operational and strategic problems. But uh, as Victor Hansen Davis comments, new technologies don't necessarily transform the conditions that determine who wins and who loses wars. But when we think about how effective technology might be, we also need to think about some of the flaws that have been demonstrated um, in using technology in practical terms in wars of the past. And here I think there are two uh, issues worth considering. One is friction, friction in war. Friction, all those things that separate war in practice from war in theory. So uh, uh, physical wear and tear, the psychological um, weariness of operators, and the fact critically that in war you are fighting against an adversary that is constantly trying to disrupt what it is that you're doing. Um, this issue of uh, friction is um, absolutely critical because technology very rarely performs in practice as well as it should do in theory. It's a picture here of uh, Iraq. When you look at the Iraq war, the largest, uh, the largest pause in operations in Iraq wasn't caused by enemy action per se. It was caused by the collapse of some of the technologies that US forces were relying on. Bandwidth problems, problems with the networks, problems um, in situational awareness at a tactical level were often uh, critically bad. As one uh, US officer has commented, being involved in, in development of autonomous systems, the autonomy thing's effing hard. All the little decisions build up, especially in a chaotic situation like war. War is just manifestly and elementally complex and difficult to do. And it puts an extraordinary strain on technologies. The, um, 
The second point that relates to this idea of friction is this adversarial element in war. Uh, as another US officer has commented, capabilities create dependencies and dependencies create vulnerabilities. If we are reliant on certain kinds of technologies, satellite technologies, networks, for example, then they will be targeted by adversaries. They will be targeted by them because that's the way that war works. And so it is highly likely at various points in time that those systems uh, will be crashed. We're likely to look, to look forward to the future to a, an electromagnetic spectrum, which is highly contested. Cyber dimension, which is highly contested. And this then uh, bleeds into the problem of system complexity and the idea of normal accidents. The idea of normal accidents developed uh, in the civilian world to explain the problems like the Three Mile Island um, nuclear accident in the 1970s. And the basic argument here is that once systems reach a significant de degree of complexity, accidents aren't uh, just a possibility, they are inevitable. Accidents are normal in complex systems. You cannot prevent them. And so if we develop in the future, or continue to develop highly technologically sophisticated systems, we're looking at systems that inevitably will fail at some time or other. And that leads to the possibility then that can be exploited by an adversary or that we cannot restore those systems effectively. Worse, in highly complex systems, you find that small problems in one part of the system get transferred very quickly through to all of the rest. So problems have a snowballing effect. So you're likely to have, in any case, normal accidents. Your systems will crash. But also in an environment of war, which is complex, in which you're at, an adversary is trying to do that to you deliberately. These systems will fail. What then do you do? Um, what do you do in degraded environments when critical technologies no longer work, when GPS doesn't work? And then finally, to prove there is a God, uh, broadly, what uh, challenges might technology pose uh, for armies? Even if technology is revolutionary, there remain a whole range of other sub-questions which we don't know the answers to either and which are important. So uh, very briefly, what impact might new technologies have on society? That's relevant for you. It's relevant for land warfare because, uh, for example, it might have very um, positive effects. It's possible, for example, that sophisticated AI may be, may be able to solve some of the problems we can't solve. Climate change, poverty, these sorts of things. If you can reduce the stress on society, you reduce the incidence of war. So land warfare may be less prevalent in the future. Uh, or it might be that uh, new technologies actually increase the pr prospects of conflict. Um, if you take a pessimistic view like the Suskins do, we're on the brink of a second industrial revolution. That second industrial revolution um, pushed forward by artificial intelligence. So the argument goes, well, wipe out large chunks of the middle class professions. Uh, jobs like you know, for doctors, lawyers, um, lecturers. Ray. Uh, this is argued uh, to be important because uh, middle classes tend to have a stake in the status quo. They have a stake, therefore, in society and stability. So the argument goes you wipe out the middle classes, uh, you remove an agent uh, of stability. It's a controversial argument, but, but it's an argument that's been made. Uh, will new technology be disruptive or sustaining? We don't know. There's a 
tendency in, in thinking about future technology to assume that technology will just allow us to do what we already do, but do it better. But actually, technology might be disruptive. It might completely make uh, render irrelevant existing ways of doing things. We might struggle. We might flounder to think actually about how these technologies can be used effectively, maybe until we actually have to fight. Who will benefit is another key question. Will land forces benefit from future technologies? Um, Gulf War. In the wake of the Gulf War, the Air Force is absolutely certain that the uh, coming revolution in military affairs will be an Air Force-focused revolution, and land forces will be rendered um, much less relevant. What you would need would be land, land forces focused on special forces and perhaps some constabulary forces as well. Basically, they will be supporting air power. That turned out to be nonsense, but that doesn't mean that it will continue to be nonsense in the future. So to what extent would new technology change the balance of uh, importance between the services? Will it change uh, the balance between attack and defense? In land warfare, the defense tends to be the stronger form of war. But will that continue to be the case in the future? And if future technologies, hypersonic technologies, autonomous technologies benefit the attacker, if you can knock out your opponent's military system in minutes, what does that do to stability? What does that do to deterrence? Will this technology benefit state or non-state actors? Uh, development of autonomous systems, for example, and AI um, is something which uh, is being pushed forward by companies. And if this technology then leaks out to, to non-state actors, terrorist groups, whatever, it may well be that that gives them um, prodigious capabilities to attack, um, to attack states. And then finally, what kinds of armies will we need to fight in the future? What technology might do? Would you ask questions about the relevance of the human element? Speed is critical in war. It's one of those things that, that is it, you know, central to ideas like OODA loops. At what point do you have to remove humans from the loop? At what point do things like human machine teams become irrelevant if your opponent has gone fully autonomous and is operating at a relative speed that you can't compete with? What will it do to your organizational culture and ethos if, for example, you become not soldiers but operators? Uh, what will it do to um, concepts like responsibility and authority in your organization if more and more decisions are taken autonomously by machines? Uh, what sort of size of armed forces uh, will you need? And this is particularly the case because, of course, um, you also heard this here first, you're probably not going to get much more money. If you have to invest in new technologies, what does that mean then for your investment in other areas like personnel? And the problem of bifurcation. That is, um, you have the idea that you can uh, train high to fight low. But maybe that won't be the case in the future, or it will be much less possible to do that. In other words, the technologies to required to fight high-intensity uh, conventional war might not be easily applicable to lower intensity conflicts where you just might need, for example, more boots on the ground, where numbers, where mass might still be more critical. It might make it much more difficult to fight certain kinds of war. And then there are ethical considerations. Um, who takes responsibility for uh, war crimes? 
Might uh, technology might make it easier to commit war crimes if you can kill civilians, but no one needs to take direct responsibility? Then there are questions for you as an individual. So, for example, um, US drone operators tend to suffer higher rates of PTSD than pilots do. So what impact might it have on those required to operate this technology? So, uh, conclusions. History suggests that we are poor at predicting the future. Uh, essentially, the more confident someone is in telling you that certain sorts of technology will definitely have this sort of effect on, on future world, the more definite they are about that, the more suspicious you need to be. We don't know what impact technology will have on the future. It could be radical. It might be less radical than we think. It might revolutionize wars, or it might revolutionize wars, but just in ways that we don't expect. Uh, so Michael Howard has made the point, no matter how clearly one thinks, it's impossible to anticipate precisely the character of future conflict. The key is not to be so far off the mark that it becomes impossible to adjust once that character is revealed. And this uh, is a quote that's often used. But I think we need to bear in mind just how difficult it might be to get even close to the mark. The things that might really um, trip us up in the future are the things that we probably haven't thought of. They're the unknown unknowns. Um, we have, as um, uh, Michael Lifman's uh, uh, commented, a knowledge gap about the future. And that's a problem. Uh, Frank Hoffman has quoted uh, Littlefinger from Game of Thrones in explaining this problem as well. Littlefinger comments, it's the things that don't, it's the things you don't know that usually get you killed. So what we need to expect in the future is surprise. It's not merely possible or even probable, it's certain. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going, keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.